Hello, and welcome to Academy Conversations Uncut, a podcast of rare Q&As with the world's foremost filmmakers, hosted by the Academy and released for the first time to the public, unedited. Today's panel was recorded in December 2019 at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, California. Discussing the Academy Award-winning movie, 1917, a race against time set in the trench warfare of World War I and told in one continuous long take, we were joined by producer and director Sam Mendez, actors George Mackay and Dean Charles Chapman, writers Christy Wilson-Carnes, cinematographer Roger Deakins, and editor Lee Smith. The panel was hosted by John Horn. Here's John. Good afternoon, I'm John Horn, the host of The Frame on KPCC. Thank you. Uh, we have an amazing panel. I'm gonna bring up writer, director, producer, Sam Mendes. Screenwriter, Christy Wilson-Cairns. Cinematographer, Roger Deakins. Editor Lee Smith. Actor Dean Charles Chapman. And actor George Mackay. Sam, I'm going to ask you about two men who I think had a lot to do with this movie. It may seem somewhat unrelated. Your grandfather and James Bond. So <laughs> let's talk about your grandfather and about Spectre and how those two things came to coalesce in the original idea for how you're going to make this movie. They were the same person. Oh, okay. Um, my grandfather fought in the, in the war. Obviously, you can see that the movie is dedicated to him. He fought in the war from 16 to 18, and he was 17 years old. But he didn't speak of the experience at all to his own children it was only when he got into his 70s that he started talking to his grandchildren about it and so I have very vivid memories of him I must have been about 11 or 12 he was a very small wiry theatrical great storyteller and we all adored him and he but he told stories that were shocking um, they weren't stories of heroism or bravery um, they were unadorned stories of uh, of horror really the the scale of the war um, and how lucky he was to have survived it, um, you know, and the, the the luck and coincidence and accidental heroism. He won two medals, but he claimed that it was entirely by accident. And he told one story about um, uh, about being sent as a messenger across no man's land with one message, and it was that image of that little person in the mist carrying that one message that really inspired the movie. Um, I just thought, what if he kept going? And that's what uh, we turned into this story. The bond, uh, uh, I'm assuming you mean <laughs> when, I, when I, what gave me the courage to write the story was having spent five years on the Bond movies, in a sense, creating with the writers something from nothing. Um, in both cases, I, I didn't inherit anything at the beginning of the process and I sat in the room with the writers and watched something be created from the blank page. And I did think to myself, Perhaps I could do this myself for the first time. And um, so that's what drove me to put together a story um, 
and I worked out the various story points and beats and then I stalled and then I'd already worked on a script very successfully, I felt, with Christy um, for something that, for reasons I won't bore you with, didn't come off. But it, it seemed an obvious port of call and she was the person who crystallized it and brought it uh, into script form. Christy, when you have the idea of the form and you also have the idea of the story, which one wins? And how does form start dictating story and how does story dictate form in terms of how you're going to shoot the film and what you can and cannot do story-wise? I mean, story always wins. I think everyone on this stage will tell you story wins. I mean, you can do amazing things with a camera, but what's the point if you don't care about the characters you're following? So that, I mean, we sat down and when we first kind of wrote this, we never thought, oh, is any of this achievable? In fact, I often thought most of it was completely unachievable. <laughs> um, but I went with it because I was working with Sam and, and he knew what he was doing. Um, so yeah, story is, is always the principle. When you think about what you need in terms of what Roger's going to be able to shoot, and you start thinking backward from how these scenes are go going to unfold and the time period in which they're going to unfold, how does that work itself out? At what point do you start talking to department heads about what you've written and whether or not it is filmable? And, and, and does Sam have opinions about that might work, that might be too difficult, in terms of specific sequences? Well, well I had the luxury of writing it with Sam. <laughs> so he knew um, <laughs> or had a very good idea of what was and wasn't achievable. And, and really, I mean, we never retroactively fit the story for the form. When I first sat down with Sam, the very first thing he said to me or the very last thing he said to me in the first call before hanging up on me was, oh, by the way, it's all going to be one shot. So I knew what I was getting into. <laughs> I knew sort of like my dream job was a very tough dream job. Um, and basically the, the story would have to be in real time. So that would dictate how we would tell the story. And it would dictate things like exposition, which becomes, you know, a sore thumb in any of, of a real time story. And then that it was going to be one shot. And the two of them are in the script. Obviously, you have to tell the script from that point of view. But we never went, oh, will we be able to shoot this? Does the fact that you have to work so quickly and get rid of things like backstory and exposition actually benefit you as a storyteller? That you don't have characters who say, remember that time? Time we were that you don't have to do that because you can't. Yeah, well, could you imagine if Blake and Schofield woke up at the start of the film and was like, and how is your wife, Martha? <laughs> Who do you know what I mean? It would be so. What benefits me as a storyteller and what benefits, I think, us all in this film is that we were trying to mirror reality. We were stripping away artifice. And so, in a way, what I was trying to do in the script was, as the author, be invisible, right. which is a kind of unusual thing to do, but very satisfying. Roger, you have this early conversation with Sam about his intentions, and it's obviously a bold idea. At what point do you start trying to figure out whether or not it's attainable and what you're going to have to do to attain it? Uh, way after we'd figured out the, what the shots were, we, we started off just discussing the overall sort of conception of how we were going to move the camera relative to the actors and to, you know, to visualize the story. But we, we said we had this pact that we wouldn't think about the technology. We wouldn't think how to do it. We, we would sort of dream about what we wanted to do. And it was only after, you know, we storyboarded for months and then we started rehearsing with Dean and George for months as well. And it was only when really all the shots were laid out and then, then we sort of broke it down into sections depending on the location that we were on, depending on the... Uh, the performance and how Sam wanted to break it down into sections of performance and uh, and also sometimes in terms of what equipment would do that particular piece of work, you know. What were the rules? Because there is a shot 
soon after the boys go over the wall, they go down into a crater that's filled with water, and the boys go left, and the camera goes over the water. Obviously, the camera's never ahead of them, but in terms of your conversation about subjective and objective point of view, what were the rules, and how did you try to define those rules through every shot? Well, it's instinct, really, as much as anything else. You know, you it's a constant evolving dance uh, between the the camera and the characters. But in that case, it's the characters who move further away. Mm -hmm. It's the 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 camera takes the direct route, and it's finding. So then you have to construct uh, the crater to carry the the actors and the the characters away and back again. So that felt like a natural breathing out where you're able to see them small, the scale of the landscape, understand the physical difficulty of, of climbing back up the, the side of the vast crater. You've already heard from Andrew Scott's character that if you fall into those craters, there's no getting out. So there's always an element of danger. And you feel the presence of death in, in all sorts of odd ways, shapes that look like bodies, but are they, are they just... And it allows, I hope, an audience's eyes to begin to look for themselves across the landscape. There was, an, there was an element that Roger and I were both keen to bear witness to no man's land, not just use it uh, through their point of view, but to say this existed and look at the scale of it and understand the, the, the scale of destruction and the, and the fact that they're walking amongst the dead, those, those two young lads. So, it, but it's instinct, moment to moment. We I didn't just really- I was just gonna say, I think, I mean, you know, all the thinking and all the sort of, you know, plans you can do when it comes down to it, it's an instinct you kind of feel a shot and th we talk about it and it just feels right doesn't it i mean uh, you you houston said you make a film with your gut not with your head roger how would you have different conversations with say your production designer based on the parameters of how you're shooting this that you wouldn't have had with a film where you're having multiple edits what did you need to know when you're going into a space about how it's designed about how you're going to move and how you're going to light well, yeah, we had to work it out all in advance. That's why we, I mean, we're in a field with the, the guys measuring out the trenches, figuring out where the, you know, 90 degree turns are as you come to the front line, where the, where the action takes place, where the individual moments happen, where they go over the front line. It all had to be worked out in beforehand. So Dennis, you know, we did a fantastic job, but he needed to know the length of the trench. How, you know, before he started digging, you just can't dig a trench and do it. Conventionally, you could if you had a, you know, a hundred yard trench, fine. You could double it up, change a costume, do a wide shot here and then double it up. It would be fine, but we couldn't on this. It all had to be built to, to, to serve the shot, you know? Something else you can't do, Lee, is you can't fix it in post. The shot either has to work or it doesn't. And what does that mean editorially in terms of how you are looking at footage that's coming in and what does and does not make your edit? It's pure terror <laughs> on a daily basis, fear. Because every time I looked at it, we were building the film as we were going and I was talking to Sam a lot every morning and the film just had to work. There was no going back. It wasn't the usual situation with coverage where you know we could look at something that was a little bit, you know, ropey and you could fix it in post you could polish it you could halve the length of it you could juxtapose the scenes you couldn't do any of that so this film had to be kind of perfect every day and that was um kind of nothing i've experienced before and uh it was yeah it was really exciting and it's like a i sort of described it 
once is like Christmas because every morning, you know, you'd be watching each of these takes unfold and at one point there was 39 of them. <laughs> and uh, at some points, are there none of them if there's daylight issues or you don't get a shot that you actually... Yeah, I mean, some days the guys, you know, I'd come in and my assistant, I'd sit there all happy to unwrap my Christmas present. He'd say, you got nothing. <laughs> a lump of coal. And... Uh, so, you know, and then we'd realise, we'd hear during the day that they couldn't shoot, but, you know, they used that to their advantage and rehearsed and then, you know, because we're all worried about schedule and I can't help but be worried when I'm ever on a film and, you know, you're running behind or the shoot's running behind because the pressure will then come from the studio to drop sequences. Well, ha-ha, they can't do it. <laughs> so it's like studio notes on this film, ha-ha. <laughs> We weren't happy with the pace at the beginning. Well, tough shit. <laughs> you own it. There are obviously edits and blends that you make throughout the course of the film. I'm wondering in the river sequence, if there are certain sequences maybe in the water where it is incredibly difficult to figure out what those moments are going to be and how you shoot a shot like that without having any noticeable camera cuts. Yeah, I mean, the, that was, uh, from my point of view, it felt more organic. I mean, every shot was carefully designed and figured out. But, you know, you've got George bobbing up and down in a raging river and all the guys, you know, shooting every day. And we were continuously looking at it, trying to see through the shots that needed visual effects and how to connect them and, and the speed and pace that George would travel, had to be attended to. So every day you're making an educated guess, well, I was, on how it would work and we'd roughly assemble shots again for Sam and some of them would look great and some of them would be a bit iffy. But again, you make the... You know that they're going to work. And I think that was the bottom line with that sequence is you get to the point where you go, OK, we have everything we need. It might take a little while, but... You know, it, it's all there, it's all working, there's nothing, you know, too terrifying. But, yeah, that was a terrifying scene. <laughs> Dean, I want to ask you about somebody who's not in the film, but I think is in the film. His name is David Henry Pierce, and he appears in the Western Front Diaries. Who is David and why is that important to how you built your character? Yeah, um, so when I found out I got the part, I asked uh, my mum and dad if we had any ancestors that fought in the First World War. They didn't know. Uh, but they asked their mums and dads, and then they asked around the family, the cousins, you know, the aunts, the uncles, and they came back and said, yeah, we've got a guy, I have a great-great-grandfather called David Henry Pierce, and uh, he has a diary entry in a book, and it's called The Western Front Diaries, and it's snippets of diary entries. Um, so I bought the book, and he talks about how he fought in the cavalry, um, one day when he was out in no man's land, he was shot and was paralysed. And he was basically bleeding out for four days in no man's land trying to survive. <clears throat> and, uh, but he survived the war and he worked in the first poppy factory that opened in London, in Richmond. Uh, and then he worked there until the day he died. Um, but yeah, that, that definitely, like that whole book helped me. But knowing that story of my grandfather definitely made me feel a million times more connected to, to Blake and the story. 
We've talked about some of the technical challenges of making a film like this as an actor, Dean, when you are having to do not only long takes, you're probably pretty far away from Sam where he is watching your work. How much is the rehearsal process important, not just in knowing where you have to be at a certain point in a shot, but that character instinct becoming almost organic because there's so much muscle memory through that rehearsal? Exactly, I mean, it was really crucial for everybody. I mean, we started rehearsing six months before we started shooting, um, which, I mean, as an actor is pretty rare. You know, you don't really get to rehearse. You just sort of step on set in front of an already set up camera and you're still really learning about your character as you go along. Whereas this, we had the luxury to learn about our character, learn the root of the men. And and, uh, and that's basically, you know, I think it was Roger that just said, you know, we was in an empty field six months before shooting literally walking and talking the scenes, you know, as they would be in the full pace um, and stabbing stakes in the floor as we went along, you know, like there'd be the corner, mm -hmm. you know, there's the start point, there's the finish point. And uh, we, we pretty much did that with every scene, didn't we? Um, yeah. I want to ask you about the scene where your character dies because it's a single shot and there is a pallor to your face. It almost feels like the life is draining out of you. And because we're watching this in real time, I know somebody's not rushing in and powdering your face and making you look paler. Can you talk about that scene and about that moment because there's so much to accomplish as an actor, but it also has to be visually real. Yeah, that, um, I mean, that scene, that was one that we didn't really rehearse. We, we rehearsed it once in a rehearsal room like a couple months before we got to that scene. Um, and I just remember like the first time we did it, I, you know, when they called cut, I couldn't stop crying because I was just so caught up in, you know, what, what my character was going through. And, and that's the thing with these, <clears throat> with these continuous takes. As an actor, you do really get lost in the scene. You know, some scenes were like five, six, seven minutes, maybe. Maybe. Whatever you think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you would just get lost. You would, uh, you know, and that, and that was a beautiful feeling and something that I've never, never had before. And it was a scene that, you know, after I, I finished filming, it definitely played on my mind a little bit, you know, because I was Blake for six months in the rehearsals, you know, every day trying to get to my brother, you know, and then, and then suddenly I didn't, I fouled. And um, it was quite weird. Um, but it was it was a really weird scene to film as well, as well because I genuinely felt like I was dying. And it's a, it's a really terrible thing to open your shirt and look down and actually see blood pissing out of your stomach. It sent chills up my spine every time. George, I want to ask you about one of the final scenes in the film when you're running and it looks like you're in an NFL game. You're just getting creamed. <laughs> it looks as if what Roger is shooting is what's really happening. Can you talk about that scene and how much is observed and how much is random people actually running into you? It was random people running into me. <laughs> Genuinely, we rehearsed that for, for weeks before, months before. And, and built the scene. You know, the first time we did it was with 20 crew members and a super souped-up golf cart. <laughs> and then everyone who was there on the location scout, go, just get involved, get involved, see if you can run in between, see what it looks like. And then months later, we're there with two cranes and a, and a tracking vehicle with a crane on the back and two grips in costume because they can't get out of the shot. And all those explosions that you see were there practical practical effects and and we rehearsed it that that I make it through and and I didn't on the takes um <laughs> I got I got knocked over so but we just kept on going the rule was always don't stop until you hear cut so um so we just kept going
And as an actor doing a scene like that, it must be both terrifying and liberating to know that there are things that are going to go wrong and you have to stay in character. Yeah, well, it's, but, you know, it, it kind of plays into it, you know, that when there's there's bits of your reality that play into the reality of the story, that's always gold as an actor. Like, I remember looking down that trench and my heart was just doing that, you know, and thinking, oh, this is, there's no choice. We can't, it's happening, it's happening, we're going. And then it was like, and then we went and it was, it's so exciting. I remember it's like the biggest high ever, like you come off. And I remember when we, when we made it through, just being like, what are you doing? <laughs> Just like, because it's a huge day. You know, there was 500 men there all teaming over the top. And there were so many things on that day because also watching the rehearsal, there was uh, one of the stunt team was, um, you know, to save my legs before did a, did a run when, when everyone came across the top to see what it looked like. And, uh, and, uh, and I stood behind and watched it from the perspective of the men going over. And it was really emotional because there was no explosions on that, that moment. And so all you could hear was the mess tins of 500 men's jiggling as they just teamed over again and again. And it was a, it was a day of, of all emotions. So it was, yeah, it was a lot. Lee, I'm wondering when they are doing what they're doing in terms of sound recording, in terms of performance, how much are you able to capture as they're doing it? Are you adding ADR? Or are you actually able to get the actors in the moment given all, their, all the other things that they have to accomplish? Uh, <clears throat> the location recorder Stuart did an incredible job on this and I'd say you know 96% which is incredible for this kind of a movie is production sound that you're hearing uh, <laughs> very little ADR a couple of take changes you know the odd you know, we get the odd expletive out when George got hit by that guy <laughs> that we don't, we don't talk about I heard it <laughs> um, but Phenomenal amount of sound uh, from their voices, but obviously, you know, then the sound is, you know, very heavily augmented um, with real explosions that would tear them apart. But those explosions were pretty damn scary. I wouldn't want to run by them. I like air conditioning, you know, <laughs> comfortable chair. Roger, you plan out so much of this, and yet, inevitably, on a certain shot, certain day, there are things that don't quite work out the way you planned or imagined them. Outside of George getting run over by all the soldiers, what would you say was a happy accident where something turned out way that maybe you didn't pre-visualize it in terms of where the camera was going to be, what the shot was going to look like? That surprised you because it wasn't something that you had planned for. No, the hardest thing for me was watching the sky and judging how, <laughs> how long we'd have a cloud to be able to shoot the shot because I wanted to shoot everything in cloud except for the last shot of the film. I wanted the sun to come out. And what's in the movie is take one and the sun wow. came out. <laughs> we judged it on a cloud and we did, but I mean, how it's either that can you or, get? It's either that or Roger is God. <laughs> Well, maybe. <laughs> I'm working on it. Sam, how are you directing the actors? How close are you to their to them in performance uh, because they're going long distance? And how do you know, as a filmmaker, what takes are working? And because obviously you have your cinematographer, your editor who have to sign up, but what do you know or what are you looking for that might be different from them in terms of performance? And how do you have conversation given the technical challenges that you're up against? 
<clears throat> well, you're hoping that by that time it's pretty telepathic, really. I mean, you've worked so long, everyone as a group. Mm -hmm. And what the extraordinary thing was about this movie is that every single member of every department was engaged in every shot because they had to be. Mm -hmm. So it was none of that, well, this, is, this refers to this department, this refers to that department. Everybody was involved in everything from the very beginning. And even though the actors were rehearsing you know, across a six-month period, all they were really doing was being part of prep from day one, which is what we would normally do. But we couldn't move without that sense of what their natural rhythms would be, the rhythm of walking, moving, running, the rhythm of speech. What you're trying to do on a daily basis is judge rhythm and tempo, which is something you would never normally do. Um, but because I'm from the theater, that, that's a more common experience for me to judge the rhythm and the pace of a whole two hour, two and a half hour story without recourse to cuts. So, but you've got so many more elements in this than you do with a play. Everything's moving all the time. The camera's always moving. The characters are always moving. The landscape's moving. The light's changing. And you've got background too. And any number of things can derail you. So what I was doing was I was working off a very large monitor screen, which I had to because I had to see every detail because I didn't want to let anything slip by. And that meant that I was stuck in a, in a, in a van, as was Roger. And often we would be at the end of the scene or at the beginnings. Either way, they would be starting you know, half a mile away and coming towards us or, or we would be at the beginning and they would just disappear. And there were a number of times when I had to say cut and they couldn't hear me. They just carried on <laughs> acting away down the hill and over the horizon, you know, blissfully unaware that we were, that the camera wasn't on them anymore. I mean, and there, and there were days, there were days, I mean, there's a, you've seen the movie now, there's a colonel who sits in a, his, uh, his car uh, in the Mark Strong scene uh, played by a wonderful actor called Bill McCabe and you know, his experience of that was three minutes before he had his, his scene was hearing way in the distance, action, like that. And then eventually, two minutes into the scene, someone in the, you know, AD hiding in the backseat of the car went, now. And then he did his scene, out came Mark, and he played his scene with George, and then off they went, and there was another three minutes went by, and eventually, and cut, like this. And after about five takes, I heard this rather forlorn voice looking around, said, Sam, I came trotting out, which again was over a hill, you know. And he said, where's the camera? And I said, it's just behind you. He said, oh, he said, I absolutely no sense of where the crew, I can't see anybody. I don't know where the ADs are. There's no sign of a camera. I thought I was being punked, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, and at the end of the day, bless him, he said, well, that was one of the most enjoyable but strangest days I've ever had on a movie. Because it was like being part of a reenactment. You know, he was surrounded by 300 soldiers in full costume and everyone was completely focused and doing it. But there was no evidence that there was a movie being made. And I, that really tickled me. But that is sometimes what it felt like, you know, that you couldn't see the crew. And, and, and often, the, you know, George and Dean, you know, you know, had no there was no sense because obviously we're shooting 360 a lot of the time so we're hiding things where we're, where we're miles away a couple more questions christy i want to ask you even though this is a fictional story it's grounded in a lot of history and historical research there's the hindenburg line where the germans were retreating to how much of the script is informed by what was happening at the war at that moment i'm well, obviously, the story takes place on April 6th because that is the day the British woke up to find the Germans gone. And so you have this tremendous opportunity as a storyteller to tell a story in the fog of war. But actually, very little of it is actually based on a true story. It's inspired by a lot of true accounts. It's inspired by Sam's grandfather, um, by the research that we both found, snippets have been taken from that. But the story is completely fabricated. The characters, everyone they meet, we made that up. Roger, I'm gonna ask you this last question. There have been a lot 
fair number of movies about World War II, maybe not as much about World War I. I want to ask you a little bit about what the war means to you. You're not, your film is not about the Battle of the Somme, where more than a million people were killed or injured, fighting over a couple of miles of land. When you grew up, when you heard stories about World War I, what did it mean to you, and what do you hope this film means to people who don't know about what happened on those battlefields? I grew up in Devon, and I still have a place in Devon, and all the little villages and towns in Devon have a, a memorial to the soldiers that died in the First World War and the Second World War, but I particularly remember, remember crosses dedicated to the soldiers that died in the First World War, and sometimes you'll, you'll be in a tiny village and you'll see name after name the same, and you're kind of like five, six, seven or eight male members of that same family died in that war, and a village is like a tiny little village in, in the countryside. And uh, I, that not just sticks with me, if I go back, there it is. Those. And so I really hope, it's not a history lesson, but I hope it really inspires people to look into the war a bit more and just because it was such a crucial event, not only in the history of Europe, but the way the world's changed since then. And yeah, I agree. And there's something, you know, one should remind oneself that these men were fighting over a free and unified Europe, which in our country certainly at the moment would be good to remember. Um, <laughs> And on top of that, you know, the, 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 the winds that were blowing before this war began are blowing again. And, you know, there's, there's, it's worth uh, remembering that a war that can get buried under a sort of avalanche of nationalistic cliches about us doing it all on our own was, in fact, a version of hell. And, and it's over 100 years, and I hope it's not forgotten. Sam, Christy, Roger, Lee, Dean, George, thank you for bringing us your film. Thanks for listening to Academy Conversations Uncut. We hope you enjoyed this unique access to a members-only Q&A at the Academy. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and help us reach film lovers around the world. This podcast was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.